Chapter Twenty One of Freaks on the Fowls Three Months Rustication Story One by R. M. Ballantyne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elaine Conway, England. Chapter Twenty One The End rain 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 continual pertinacious and mitigated rain the white house was no longer white it was grey things were no longer damp they were totally flooded mr McAllister's principal hayfield was a pond every ditch was a rivulet the burn was a destructive cataract the white torrents that raged down the mountains everywhere far and near looked like veins of quartz and the river had become a lake with a strong current in the middle of it there was no sunshine now in the highlands not a gleam nevertheless there was sunshine in the hearts of some who sojourned there mr sudbury had found out that he could fish just as well in wet weather as in dry and that the fish were more eager to be caught that was sunshine enough for him lucy found a new and engrossing amusement of a semi-scientific kind in laying down and pressing her botanical specimens and writing latin names under the same being advised thereto and superintended by hector macdonald that was sunshine enough for her and for him too apparently for he came every day to help her and she declared she could not get on without help and it was quite wonderful to observe how very slowly the laying down progressed although both of the semi-philosophers were intensely interested in their work flora was so sunny by nature that she lightened up the place around her wherever she went she was thus in some measure independent of the sun george was heard to say more than once that her face was as good as a sunbeam any day mrs sudbury poor woman was so rampantly triumphant in the total discomfiture of her husband touching the weather that she resigned herself to highland miseries in a species of happy contentment and thus lived in what might be likened to a species of mild moonshine of her own tilly poor delicate unobtrusive tilly was at all times satisfied to bask in the moonlight of her mother's countenance as for jacky that arch imp discovered that wet weather usually brought his victims within doors and therefore kept them constantly within reach of his dreadful influence he was supremely happy darling child fred finished up his sketches need we say that that was sunshine to him the servants too shared in the general felicity indeed they may in a sense be said to have been happier than those they served for having been transported to that region to work they found the little bits of fun and amusement that fell to their lot all the more pleasant and enjoyable that they were unexpected and formed a piquant contrast to the monotonous routine of daily duty but the brightest blaze of internal sunshine the most effulgent and dazzling beams of light were shared forth in the lowly hut of jacky's particular friend old moggy did not die after all 
to the total discomfiture of the parish doctor and the reflected discredit of the medical profession generally that obstinate old creature got well in spite of the emphatic assurances of her medical adviser that recovery was impossible the doctor happened to be a misanthropy he was not aware that in the materia medica of nature's laboratory there is a substance called joy which sometimes effects a cure when all else fails or if he did know of this medicine he probably regarded it as a quack nostrum at all events his substance cured old moggy as willie said in less than no time she took such deep draughts of it that she quite surprised her old friends so did willie himself in fact these two absolutely took to tippling together on this medicine more than that jacky joined them and seemed to imbibe a good deal chiefly through his eyes which were always very wide open and watchful when he was in the old hut he drank to them only with his eyes and ears and could not be induced to enter into conversation much farther than to the extent of yes and no not that he was shy by no means the truth was that jacky was being opened up mentally the new medicine was exercising an unconscious but powerful influence on his sagacious spirit in addition to that he was fascinated by willie for the matter of that so was old moggy for did not that small sailor-boy sing and laugh and talk to them for hours about sights and scenes of foreign travel of which neither of them had dreamed before of course he did and caused both of them to stare with eyes and mouths quite motionless for half hours at a time and then roused them up with a joke that made jacky laugh till he cried and made moggy who was always crying more or less laugh till she couldn't cry yes there was very brilliant sunshine in the hut during that dismal season of rain there was the sunshine of human love and sympathy and flora was the means of introducing and mingling with it sunshine of a still brighter and a holier nature which while it intensified the other rendered it also permanent at last the end of the sudbury's rustication arrived the last day of their sojourn dawned it happened to be bright and beautiful so bright and lovely that it made one feel as if then never had been a bad day since the world began and never would be another bad one to the end of time it was the fourth fine day of the six dreary weeks the third which occurred some days before was only half and half and therefore unworthy of special notice nevertheless the sudburys felt sad they were going away the mental sunshine of the rainy season was beclouded and the physical sunshine was no avail to dispel such clouds my dear said mr sudbury at breakfast that morning in a very sad tone have you any further use for me my dear no replied his partner sorrowfully from the nature of those remarks under the tone in which they were uttered an ignorant spectator might have imagined that mr sudbury having suspected his wife of growing indifference and having had his worst fears confirmed from her own lips meant to go quietly away to the river and drown him in a deep pool with a strong eddy so that he might run no chance of being prematurely washed upon a shallow but the good man merely referred to the packing in connection with which he had been his wife's right hand during the last three or four days 
well then my love as the heavy baggage has gone on before and we are ready to start with the coach which does not pass until the afternoon i will go and take a last cast in the river mrs sudbury made no objection so mr sudbury accompanied by george and fred went down to the dear old river as they styled it for the last time now it must be known that some weeks previous to this time hobbs had been allowed by his master to go out for a day's trout fishing and hobbs failing to raise a single fin put on a salmon fly in reckless desperation he happened by the merest chance to cast over a deep pool in which salmon were and still are wont to lie to his amazement a whale as he styled it instantly rose sent its silvery body half out of the water and fell over with a tremendous splash but missed the fly hobbs was instantly affected with temporary insanity he cast in violent haste over the same spot as if he hoped to hook the fish by the tail before it should get to the bottom again again and over again but without result then dancing on the bank with excitement he changed the fly tried every fly in the book the insanity increasing tried two flies at once back to back put on a bunch of trout flies in addition wound several worms round all failed in every attempt to cast with care and finished off by breaking the top of the rod entangling the line round his legs and fixing the hooks in his coat-tails after which he rushed wildly up to the white house tell what he had seen and show what he had done from that day forward mr sudbury always commenced his day's sport at the salmon pool as usual on this his last day he went down to the salmon pool but he had so often fished there in vain that hope was well-nigh extinguished in addition to this his spirits were depressed so he gave the rod to fred fred was not naturally a fisher and he only agreed to take the rod because he saw that his father was indifferent about it fred my boy cast a little farther over just below yon curl in the water near the willow bush ah that's about the place hobbs declares that he raised a salmon there but i can't say i've ever seen one myself though i have fished here every other morning for many weeks mr sudbury had not quite finished speaking when fred's rod was bent into the form of a large hoop hello here father take it i don't know what to do what a blaze of excitement beamed on the father's countenance hurrah hold on fred no 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 ease off he'll break all away the caution was just in time fred was holding on like a true briton he suddenly let the rod down and allowed the line to run out which it did like lightning what now father oh do take it i shall certainly lose the fish no no boy it is your fish try to play it out no one but the good man himself knew what a tremendous effort of self-denial mr sudbury made on this occasion but fred felt certain that the fish would get off he also knew that his father would give fifty pounds down on the spot to land a salmon so he said firmly father if you don't take the rod i'll throw it down this settled the question father took the rod under protest and having had considerable experience in trout fishing began to play the salmon with really creditable skill considering the difficulty of the operation and the fact that it was his first big fish 
with varied expression flitted across the countenance of the enthusiastic sportsman on this great occasion he totally forgot himself and his sons he forgot even that this was his last day in the highlands it is an open question whether he did not forget altogether that he was in the highlands so absorbed so intensely concentrated was his mind on that salmon george and fred also became so excited that they lost all command of themselves and kept leaping about cheering giving useless advice in eager tones tripping over stones and uneven places on the banks and following their father closely as the fish led him up and down the river for full two hours they too forgot themselves they did not know what extraordinary faces they went on making during the greater part of the time mr sudbury began the battle by winding up the line the salmon having begun to push slowly upstream after its first wild burst in a moment it made a dart towards the opposite bank so sudden and swift that the rod was pulled straight and the line ran out with a whiz of the most violent description almost simultaneously with the whiz the salmon leaped its entire length out of the water gave a tremendous fling in the air and came down with a heavy splash fred gasped george cheered and mr sudbury uttered a roar of astonishment mingled with alarm for the line was slack and he thought the fish had broken off it was still on however as a wild dash downstream followed by a spurt up and across with another fling into the air proved beyond a doubt the fish was very wild fortunately it was well hooked and the tackle was strong what with excitement and the violent action that ensued at each rush mr sudbury was so dreadfully blown in the first minutes that he trembled from head to foot and could scarce wind up the line for one moment the thought occurred that he was too old to become a salmon fisher and that he would not be able to fight the battle out he was quite mistaken every minute after this he seemed to gain fresh strength the salmon happily took it into his head to cease its antics for half a minute just when the fisher was at his worst that half minute of breathing space was all that was wanted george ha cut water george could not make out what his agitated parent wanted water water choking reiterated his father oh all right george scooped up a quantity of water in a leathern cup and ran with it to his choking sire who holding the rod tight with both hands turned his head aside and stretched over his left arm still however keeping his eyes fixed on the line here up the t lips the lips were projected and george raised the cup to them but the salmon moved at the moment and the draught was postponed the fish came to another pause soon after now george try again once more the lips were projected once again the cup was raised but that salmon seemed to know what was going on for just as the cup and the lips met it went off in an unusually fierce run down the river the cup and its contents were knocked into george's face and george himself was knocked over by his father as he sprang down the bank and ran along a dry patch of gravel which extended to the tail of the pool hitherto the battle had been fought within the limits of one large pool which the fish seemed to have an objection to quit it now changed its tactics 
and began to descend the river tail foremost slowly but steadily the round face of the fisher which had all this time been blazing red with eager hope was now beclouded with a shade of anxiety don't let him go down the rapids father said george you'll never get past the thick bushes that overhang the bank mr sudbury stopped and held on till the rod bent like a giant hoop and the line became rigid but the fish was not to be checked its retrograde movement was slow but steady and irresistible you'll smash everything cried fred mr sudbury was constrained to follow step by step the head of the rapid was gained and he had to increase the pace to a quick walk still farther down and the walk became a smart run the ground here was more rugged and the fisher's actions became quite acrobatic george and fred kept higher up the bank and ran along gazing in unspeakable amazement at the bounds and leaps which their fat little sire made with the agility of a roe deer hold on the bushes let it break off mr sudbury scorned the advice the part of the bank before him was impassable not so the river which rushed past him like a mill-race he tried once more to stop the fish failed of course and deliberately walked into the water it was waist deep so he was carried down like a cork with his toes touching the ground so lightly that for the first time in his life he rejoiced in those sensations which he had hitherto believed belonged exclusively to harlequins and columbines namely swift motion without effort fifty yards at the rate of ten miles an hour brought him to an eddy into which the salmon had dashed just before him mr sudbury gave vent to another roar as he beheld the fish almost under his nose the startled creature at once flashed out of his sight and swept up down and across the stream several times besides throwing one or two somersaults in the air before it recovered its equanimity after this it bolted into a deep dark pool and remained there quite motionless mr sudbury was much puzzled at this point to let out line when the fish ran up or across stream to wind in when the fish stopped and to follow when the fish went down stream these principles he had been taught by experience in trout fishing but how to act when a fish could not be made to move was a lesson which he had yet to learn what's to be done said he with a look of exasperation and no wonder he had experienced an hour and a quarter of very rough treatment and was getting fagged pull him out of that hole suggested george i can't try mr sudbury tried and failed having failed he sat down on a stone still holding the rod very tight and wiped his heated brow then starting up he tried for the next ten minutes to pull the fish out of the hole by main force of course never venturing to pull so hard as to break the line he went up the stream and pulled down the stream and pulled he even waded across the stream at a shallow part and pulled to all in vain the fish was in that condition which fishers term the salts at last fred recollected to have heard hector macdonald say that in such cases a stone thrown into the pool sometimes had the effect of starting the sulky one 
accordingly a stone was thrown in and the result was that the fish came out at full speed in a horrible fright and went downstream not tail but head foremost now when a salmon does this he knows by instinct that if he does not go down faster than the stream the water will force itself into his gills and drown him therefore when he goes down head first which he seldom does except on his way to the sea he goes at full speed and the fisher's only chance of saving his fish is to run after him as fast as he can in the hope that he may pause of his own accord in some opportune eddy a fine open space of bank enabled mr sudbury to run like a deer after his fish for nigh a quarter of a mile but at the end of this burst he drew near to the falls a succession of small cataracts and rapids which it seemed impossible for any fisher to go down without breaking his neck and losing his fish george and fred roared hold on mr sudbury glanced at the falls frowned and compressed his lips he felt that he was in for it he resolved not to be beat so on he went the fish went right down the first fall the fisher leaped over a ledge of rock three feet high scrambled across some rough ground and pulled up at an eddy where the fish seemed disposed to rest he was gratified here by seeing the fish turn up the white of his side thus showing symptoms of exhaustion but he recovered and went over another fall here he stopped again and george and fred feeling convinced that their father had gone mad threw off their coats and ran to the foot of the fall ready to plunge into the stream and rescue him from the fate which they thought they were sore impending no such fate awaited the daring man he succeeded in drawing the fish close to a gravelly shallow where it gave an exhausted wallop or two and lay over on its side george came up and leaping into the water tried to kick it out he missed his kick and fell fred dashed in and also missed mr sudbury rushed forward and gave the salmon such a kick that he sent it high and dry on the bank but in doing so he fell over george and tripped up fred so that all three were instantly soaked to the skin and returned to the bank without their hats mr sudbury flung himself on the conquered fish and held it fast while george and fred cheered and danced around him in triumphant joy thus mr sudbury landed his first and last salmon ten pounder and thus brilliantly terminated his three months rustication in the highlands but this was not the end of the whole affair by no means mr sudbury and family returned to london and they took that salmon with them a dinner-party of choice friends was hastily got up to do honour to the superb fish and on that occasion fred and his father well-nigh quarrelled on the point of who caught the salmon mr sudbury insisting that the man who hooked the fish was the real catcher of it and fred scouting the ridiculous notion and asserting that he who played and landed it was entitled to all the honour the point was settled however in some incomprehensible way without the self-denying disputants coming to blows and everyone agreed that it was out of sight the best salmon that had ever been eaten in london certainly it was one of the merriest parties that ever ate a salmon for mr sudbury's choice friends were of an uncommonly genial stamp jones the head clerk 
the man with the red nose and bumble aspect was there and so brilliant was mr sudbury that jones was observed to smile the first instance on record of his having given way to levity of demeanour lady know nothing was there too and before the evening was over she knew a few things that surprised but did not in the least convince her oh no she knew everything so thoroughly that there was no possibility on earth of increasing her stock of knowledge truly it was a happy party and mr sudbury enjoyed himself so much that he volunteered the highland fling in the drawing-room george whistling the music on which occasion he mr sudbury swept nearly half the tea-service off the table with his coat-tails and mrs sudbury was so happy that she didn't care a button and said so but this was not the end of it yet by any means that winter hector and flora macdonald visited london and were received by the sudburys with open arms the result was that lucy became intensely botanical in her tastes and rooted out the old plants of course hector could not do less than assist her and the finale was that these two scientific individuals were married and dwelt for many years thereafter in the highlands strange to say george and flora fell in love with each why say more we do not mean to write the history of these two families it is enough to say that every summer for many years after that the sudburys spent two or three months in the highlands with the macdonalds and every winter the macdonalds spent a similar period with the sudburys on the former of these occasions fred renewed his intercourse with mr mcallister and these two became so profoundly inconceivably deep and metaphysical besides theological in their converse that they were utterly incomprehensible to everyone except themselves best of all jacky became a good boy yes that down the hills with peter was the beginning of it old moggy willie and flora were the continuation of it and jacky became good so to the unspeakable joy of his mother old moggy lived to a fabulous age and became at last as wrinkled as a red herring for all we know to the contrary she may be alive yet willie lived with her and became a cultivator of the soil but why go on enough has been said to show that no ill befell any individual mentioned in our tale even mrs brown lived to a good old age and was a female dragon to the last enough has also been said to prove that as the old song has said it we little know what great things from little things may rise End of chapter twenty one End of Freaks on the Fells, Three Months Rustication, Story One by R. M. Ballantyne.